Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, it's Freddie here from Unheard. I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we've just launched. It's called These Times, and it's hosted by the brilliant Tom McTague, who you might know from The Atlantic magazine, but who since January is Unheard's very own political editor, together with the equally brilliant Helen Thompson, professor of political economy at Cambridge and Unheard contributor, who you might know as a regular co-host of the Talking Politics podcast. Each week, Helen and Tom take whatever is happening right now in politics and they do the opposite of most politics podcasts. Instead of obsessing about the minute-by-minute shenanigans in Westminster and Washington, they investigate the broader history and ideas, often decades in the making, that got us to where we are. It's the politics podcast for people who like history and ideas. What follows is the first ever episode. It's just launched. Check it out, and if you want to go on this journey with them, just search for These Times wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Hope you enjoy and get ready to feel a little bit smarter than you were just an hour ago. Welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we investigate the real history of what's going on in politics right now and what that means for the future. This week in our first two episodes we're talking about the coronation of King Charles III. The first coronation most people in this country, including us, will have experienced. We're first going to talk about what the coronation says about Britain's place in the world, and then in the second episode we're going to talk about what it says about the state of the Union here at home. The excitement of two millions is rising to fever heat. Their Majesty's procession to the Abbey is on its way. And with a flashing of breastplates and the catter of hooves, the moment has come, the moment that the whole world is waiting and watching for. The great gilded state coach moves forward in the palace forecourt. It's almost unbelievably grand, the sort of superb show that takes your breath away. Now every eye is riveted on the St. Edward's crown as the Archbishop of Canterbury lifts it from the altar to where the king sits in the coronation chair. The Archbishop of Canterbury takes it, lowers it on the royal brow. The king is crowned. I here present unto you Queen Elizabeth, your undoubted queen. Is your majesty willing to take the oath? I'm willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon? I solemnly promise so to do. The people have recognized their sovereign. 
two wonderful clips there, I thought, Helen. One from the coronation of George VI in 1936 and the other from the late queens in 1953 the second clip actually was of archbishop of canterbury geoffrey fisher a fascinating guy in his own right actually who finished his life as a simple parish priest in dorset what i think is most fascinating about that last clip is how the archbishop of canterbury asked the queen whether she swears to govern the peoples as he says not only of great britain and northern ireland the UK, in other words, but also specifically of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan and Ceylon. In King Charles's coronation on Saturday, it looks very unlikely that he will be asked to copy that same oath. He will be asked to govern the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but they won't list all of the other realms, even though he's still king, of course, of Canada, Australia New Zealand. So I think that's just one example of how the coronations, they mirror or reveal the state of the nation or the state of the nation and its place in the world. Over time, you can see it changing through each of the coronations. And that's probably the most fascinating thing about them. And that really is the subject of our discussion today. Yeah, we thought we might start really with the coronations before the First World War. There were two in the 20th century, mm. Edward the Seventh and George the Fifth. What's really interesting about this is that they were both being crowned Emperor of India. Yeah. Not just king, but this is a grander title, being an emperor, than just being a king. And indeed, in George the Fifth's case, he actually went to the coronation ceremony or the effective coronation ceremony in Delhi in 1911 and was quite literally crowned emperor of India. Now that's a a world away from obviously where we are with the coronation of King Charles III. Tom, what's the story of how we got from George V going to Delhi, being crowned emperor of India a year after he'd been crowned king of the United Kingdom? It's just fascinating, isn't it? Because you think that's a world away, but just over a hundred years ago. That's it. That's the, that, that is a, a blink of the eye in time, really, in the histories of Britain or the histories of India in particular. And yet it was there not very long ago. Obviously, there are huge momentous events in between that coronation in 1910 and our own today in 2023. The first is obviously the First World War that comes shortly after and really destroys kingdoms across Europe. But Britain's is left standing. And then, of course, you have the Second World War that comes later. And the Second World War is the last great war that ends with Britain losing India from the empire very shortly afterwards, and then pretty much losing the empire over the next 50 years. When the Queen comes to the throne in 53, she is still the Queen of an empire, but it's a much smaller empire. She's the Queen of a Commonwealth and an empire at that point. But when George V comes in, it's just a completely different world, isn't it? Yeah, I think what's interesting about the earlier period is the way in which over the previous, let's say, 40 years, so 40 years prior to 1910, the monarchy and the empire had become very much fused together in a way which I don't think that they really were prior to that. And I think probably the turning point there is when Queen Victoria is made by Disraeli, Empress of India. And that meant that thereafter, we can see in the ceremonies around 
the the monarchy, whether that be the jubilees that Victoria had in 1887 and 1897, or what then happened at the coronation of Edward the Seventh and his funeral and and George V's coronation, is there's an awful lot of imperial symbolism and imperial representation yeah. around that. So in that sense, I think that it's not simply the case that the monarchy reflects the history of the empire, that the monarchy became really bound up with the history of the empire in the latter part of the 19th century. And so it really was quite existential, I think, when we get to, say, George VI, who's the monarch on the throne when India is lost. There isn't just existential for Britain that the monarchy is reflecting, it's existential for the monarchy itself. Do you think that it was ever more than symbolism or that it ever really, there was enough time for it to really fuse together, as you were saying? Because I, I was thinking about it this morning and thinking of the time between Victoria being crowned the Empress of India and the first and only king to go to India and be crowned over there. And you thought, okay, so the next king that comes in won't travel to India because the independence movement makes it too controversial. And this is in the 30s. So you've got a gap of sort of 60 years from the queen being made the first empress of India and the last king to be crowned emperor of India not feeling comfortable going. So was it ever really stable, do you think? I don't think it was stable, though. I think it's the case that Edward VIII was pretty keen to go if he'd actually yeah. stayed on the throne. He didn't obviously get to be crowned king of the United Kingdom. If you look at the way that George VI reacted to the loss of his title of being Emperor of India, it was yeah. a very big deal for him. He, he, he found it quite upsetting. And I think that what's interesting is the way in which actually... British monarchs thought that made them much grander than they would otherwise yeah. be. And I think that's part of the, in some sense, the, the competition that was going on between the European monarchies at that time, including the competition between Russia and Britain mm. over India, the great game that was going yeah. on in Asia. The Russians had a, a czar, we had a queen, and then she became... In Empress. pecking order, basically. But there was no way that I think, or very little way in which the monarchy, the British monarchy could actually act as something that was actually going to slow down the decline of the British Empire. Because there are some amazing letters from Clement Attlee, I think, after the Second World War and when he's writing to Nehru uh, and really begging for the royal family to remain... Um, head of state and talking about this sort of great imperial family and it's this thing that bonds the two nations together because of course that was the idea that India would stay within the Commonwealth the Queen as she became the King then would stay like Australia like Canada like Ireland at the time but that didn't happen they rejected that and as would Ireland but not long before the Queen came to the throne and so you had this strange body created called the Commonwealth, which a few people at the time, only a few really, were able to see through it and say, hang on, what does this actually mean? How can you have India, an independent republic in the Commonwealth that the Queen is head of? That's a very different thing from having an Empress of India and then a Commonwealth, a British Commonwealth bound together that is fundamentally British in some way. It wasn't after Indian independence. What's interesting here is the fact that the 
really that the idea of the Commonwealth as we understand it today, in which the Queen was and the King, Queen Elizabeth was and the King now is head of that mm. Commonwealth, that specific idea of the Commonwealth came about because after Indian independence, India became a republic. Yeah. So yeah. that idea that the Commonwealth, as it was understood from what had been created in the 1920s, could endure really as a monarchical union so that you would have a group of states with their combined history in relation to the British Empire all being ruled over by the same monarch. That couldn't survive if one of those dominions no longer, as an independent state, no longer wanted a monarchical form yeah, of government yeah. or a constitutional um, monarchy. The interesting thing was, is though, that the Indian government didn't follow that to the conclusion which the Irish government said, okay... We'll leave the Commonwealth. We're, we're out. Yeah. They wanted to be in some kind of political association with Britain and the other former dominions without being subject to the rule of the British monarch. And so the Commonwealth became the means by which that apparent contradiction by the old rules became something that we know today. And it's a fudge. But I think, to be honest, it's a fudge that is got a lot in common with a lot of the other constitutional fudges that come to we like constitute it. the yeah. constitution of this country and indeed as Australia's and Canada and New Zealand. Obviously, there were people who said, look, it doesn't really mean anything. And I think that it, what is true is that the head of Commonwealth is not an actual political position. I don't think it can be described as a political position no. because there aren't anything for the Commonwealth that you could call actual political bonds between the states. There's a set of sub-states within the Commonwealth that are in a monarchical union with each other. You wonder, though, whether it was just a body to kid ourselves that it hadn't all collapsed, actually, and that it wasn't such a blow, the Indian independence wasn't as big a blow as actually it was. And at the same time, I look back at the different coronations looking at George the Sixth in 1937 and then Queen Elizabeth's in 1953 and now Charles's, and you can see the changing of the titles and you can see how we're trying to fudge this, as you say, at each time and to hide the fact that things have already changed politically. If we go back to George the Sixth in 1937, or oh, sorry, George the Fifth before him was crowned King of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas. There was at the time a single global British realm, which included Canada and Australia. One monarchical realm. And yet, already politically, the dominions, which are essentially the white bits of the Commonwealth, uh, the self-governing bits of the Commonwealth, they had been granted equal status with Britain, in theory, by the Imperial Conference, the Balfour Declaration in 1926. So already you're having this slightly odd situation where you have self-governing countries that are a certain identity, their own independent identity is emerging in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, and yet we're still part of a single monarchical realm. By the time the Queen comes in 1953 and India has been lost, that all goes. And she's no longer the queen of a single monarchical realm. She's queen of multiple realms. And we've formalized it in the queen's titles. She is now 
queen of the UK in one sense, not Great Britain and Ireland, oddly, as the previous titles were, even though Ireland had been divided at that point. Separately, she's queen of Canada. Separately, she's queen of Australia. And separately, she's queen of New Zealand. That's in the clip that we heard. That's a very different construct. And actually, again, it strikes me that we're kidding ourselves that she could ever be equally queen of Canada as she could be queen of the UK. And she never was because she didn't base herself in Canada or Australia. She got somebody else to do those monarchical roles. I think that here we've got to distinguish between the specific constitutional roles the monarch does here, like the opening of yeah. parliament that is then delegated in Canada and Australia, etc., and all the symbols and emotions that go with monarchy. Because in that sense, I'm not sure I agree that she's not equally monarch of these places. If you look at some of the countries that have subsequently had their independence between Elizabeth's coronation and Charles's coronation, yeah, some of those countries obviously now there's a real possibility that they don't want yeah. British monarch to be their monarch any longer, that they will move to becoming republics too. And we've got the situation, as we know, where Barbados has become a republic. The Jamaican government is committed to Jamaica becoming a republic without even a referendum, just as a straightforward government policies. During Charles's reign, this question of which other countries other than the United Kingdom he is monarch is going to be a really live political question. I think, though, that the Commonwealth was really important in some sense domestically in Britain, though, precisely because that fudge was reached with India in creating something that was new and that didn't mean Commonwealth equals monarchical union of the Commonwealth members, particularly then when you had the subsequent independence of various Caribbean and African states, because the Commonwealth then became multiracial at the same time as Britain was becoming a much more multiracial yeah. society. And so that allowed, I think, the monarchy to be an important part of how Britain could talk to itself oh, about the change yeah. that was happening. But I agree with that. The monarchy, almost a sort of modernising force at home, using the Commonwealth to become more modern in Britain, I think is undeniable in a way. Mm. And of course, the Queen would go on to clash with Margaret Thatcher and others because she was seen as too loyal to the Commonwealth and not fulfilling her role as Queen of the UK, which we forget that history. But I think it's fascinating that tracing that history back when the Queen was crowned in, in 1953, you had a certain sense of a great British nation, a kind of global British, or certainly a global British identity to some extent. So when Edmund Hillary climbed Everest. I think the Prime Minister of New Zealand at the time said he was proud that an Englishman had climbed Everest, and of course he was from New Zealand. But there was no, seems no contradiction at the time. He planted a Union flag on the top of Everest, and again, nobody thought that was strange. And Robert Menzies, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, said that the, the shores of Britain ended in Australia and New Zealand. And again, nobody thought that was weird. But that changed. And I, and I do wonder whether it changed partly because of we accepted the division of the monarchical realm. We didn't seek to keep the monarchical union among those who wished for it to remain or, or wished for the Queen to remain head of state. Or do you think that's just whistling in the wind? I think, right? I think that the European question is really central to like what the explanation right, of yeah. the change 
is, and we should come back to that in our second half for talking about some of these coronations again through that lens. I just want to throw in one thing really to end this, and that is the fact that we are in this monarchical union really does matter in our politics and in theirs politics. And I, I think the best example of that is is when at some point in the coalition government, I can't remember exactly when it was before, I think, Prince George was born, they were changing the rules of succession yeah. to mean that we have absolute primogenitor, so it's just birth order. That had to be done really with cooperation with Australia, New Zealand, Canada, etc., the countries that have also the monarch, because that act of settlement that basically said also, as I recall, it said that the British monarch can't marry a a Catholic, that was being dropped too. Yeah. That meant that act of settlement was changing in all these other countries. It was a kind of a legal change that had to apply everywhere. That will bring us back to the European question in, in a way because this sort of European nation that sits at the heart of this global empire that has to deal with, I think it's even in the Queen's oath where she says she, she will govern these faraway countries in accordance with their customs and laws and yet our own customs and laws here which are very peculiar to Britain often come into conflict with those customs and laws and we've seen this with the Irish question when we have the kings in England or kings in Britain struggling with the idea of Catholic emancipation and their own role as uh, defenders of the Anglican faith here, and then obviously the the examples that you've mentioned as well. I think that constant tension between what is in essence an English monarchy that has become a British monarchy and then a global monarchy, with trying to run this thing, trying to run this empire, and and then in time, a union at home is sometimes just proved too much. It is, and we're going to come back to this European question after the break. And then we're going to talk about the union questions in our second episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When I spoke to you last, I asked you all, whatever your religion, to pray for me on the day of my coronation. I have been aware all the time that my peoples spread far and wide throughout every continent and ocean in the world were united to support me in the task to which I have now been dedicated. Many thousands of you came to London from all parts of the Commonwealth and Empire to join in the ceremony. But I have been conscious too of the millions of others who have shared in it by means of wireless or television in their homes. I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service as so many of you are pledged to mine. Throughout all my life and with all my heart, I shall strive to be worthy of your trust. That, of course, was Queen Elizabeth, really the last moment of a global Britain, really, in 1953, when we still had an empire of some description. We still had this emerging Commonwealth that we had just created with the independence for India. And yet, over the next 10, 15 and 20 years, you would also have an emerging Europe and really those years, those decades were defined by a tension in Britain about what to do, whether to go with Europe or whether to go with the Commonwealth. And you had great emotional struggles, really, that, that gripped a lot of the leading figures in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party about which to choose. And they felt that they just couldn't turn their back on the Commonwealth, no matter the prize in Europe. This does raise a really interesting question, or lots of questions, really about Britain as a European monarchical power, one of the few that was left after the First World War. I think what's interesting here is clearly in the 1950s and indeed now, Britain is far from alone among the European countries in having a monarchy. But if you look at the what would have been called the great powers in Europe at the turn of the 20th century, Britain, Germany, France... Austria-Hungary, Russia, and Italy. Yeah. The French monarchy had already gone. The others had very grand monarchies. Some in some sense, I would suggest, particularly perhaps the Russian and the Austro-Hungarian, rather grander than Britain's monarchy. After all, the Austro-Hungarian one is claimed to be the successors of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> they weren't emperors, emperors of India, <laughs> though, were they? <laughs> and what we see is that the First World War destroys... Those. It doesn't destroy the Italian monarchy, but it was probably the least significant of those. Yeah. But it destroys the big monarchies. The British monarchy makes it through the First World War. The British monarchy has to reinvent itself in that context. That's how we get the House of Windsor. And obviously in the crisis moment for the Tsar and the Tsarina and their children, then George V basically doesn't want them coming to Britain and that means that they die. Uh, in Russia, so there's a certain set of complications 
for the British monarchy that are created by the demise of these other European monarchies. But ours lasts. And I think we should come to the significance of that, and particularly the fact that of the European monarchies that remain, none of them have coronation services like we do, not these kind of religious coronation um, services anyway. But I think what we should just for a moment concentrate on is what happened before George V's coronation, which was his father, Edward VII's funeral. Yeah, the sort of last moment of Europe, really, monarchical Europe, royal Europe coming together as a kind of family of, well, I was going to say a family of nations, but just a family. There were, I think, was it nine kings? Yeah, it's just amazing to read, isn't it? Who rode in the funeral procession for Edward VII. The American historian Barbara Tuchman, his book about the First World War, The Guns of August, starts actually, the first chapter of that book is about the funeral. You have these interrelated families in which, in some sense, the British royal family is at the centre because of Victoria and Albert and their children and grandchildren. The Kaiser, Wilhelm II, comes, he spends the night in Windsor and talks about this as being his family. I mean, it's a family about which he has some rather dark and complicated (laughs) emotions too, but that's what he writes home and says. And there is a sense in which they are bound to each other more than they are bound to these countries over which that they are the the heads of states. And I think it's also true that in that build up, so in the 30, 30, 40 years building up to what it will be the First World War, there was very considerable competition between the European monarchies as well as being connected by blood as to who could do these ceremonies in the grandest possible way. And it wasn't really the British, I think, that were taken to be the the ones who were supremely good at it, not least because in the first, for quite a bit of the 19th century, we, we looked like we were pretty hopeless. Do you think that's all of that trauma then is, because I, I, I almost see an arc looking back from that moment to Charles today of going from a very obviously European monarchy through this emphasis on our global realm across the world, India, and then the loss of India, but still keeping that great global realm all the way back now, it seems, through the Queen, back to Charles, and we're back to being a European monarchy again. It's like we've returned to what it once was. I think the difficulty here is that there isn't actually any way back. Right. That world just went, yeah. it just shattered between like 1914 and 1918. And that, in some sense, there's a certain, I would say, melancholy around British monarchy thereafter that you can see really clearly at these coronation moments. Because as I say, the other European countries that do have monarchies don't have these grand religious either ceremonies or the um, processional spectacles uh, that go with them. So in that sense that what the British coronation ceremony represents is a lost European world, not just for us, that we somehow held on to in a way that we can't quite comprehend the weight of that because it isn't just our story. It's become a, a symbol. But at the same time, we all know deeply that the Britain that we live in is nothing like our grandparents, great-grandparents lived in at the time of 
It's wonderfully Edward the Seventh's um, funeral. That yeah. world went here too, but we still got something that was left on it that connects us to it. And I think that's what gives it this melancholy as well as everything else. It's a kind of lovely paradox as well. The, the British monarchy, which feels like the most British symbol that you could get, which is actually a European symbol as well. It's a reminder of a of, of the European past, but we. I don't think it's, we very rarely think of it like that. No, but I think you could see some of that come out in the way in which there was the emotion that was felt in a number of European capitals when Elizabeth II died. Yeah. Because there was a sense of what, amongst at least some people, what had been lost in their country's history by the, the turn away um, from the monarchy. But I think it also leaves us with something that we struggle to understand the significance of it and can't really carry all that weight that is um, put upon it. And I think the other interesting thing, though, is is that because it is in our country, which isn't wasn't, I think, true even prior to the First World War in the same way, because uh, in a country like, say, Germany or Russia, where you actually had the monarchs actually having some real executive power, which wasn't really the case by the time we're talking about George V. They had some influence over certain things, but they weren't vested with real practical executive authority in the way in which, say, the Kaiser was, is that the monarchy is bound up with our constitution still in yeah. really complicated ways. We saw that during the Brexit conflicts between 2016 and 19. If you change things around it, you're going to have a quite profound impact on the rest of the constitution. And I think in a way... That was part of why our constitution didn't never really sat that easily in being in part of the European Union constitutional order because we have this strange constitutional monarchy that didn't have that more, not quite absolute power, but significant power that went with the grand ceremony in Germany and Russia and uh, Austria at the turn um, of the century. We were doing grand ceremony with what was a very clearly a constitutional monarch yeah the bauble going back to the politics of it again the, the the coronation and the monarchy seem to reflect the challenges that the country faces it's it, itself so so we had this political challenge that we had these obligations and rights to this global realm that had changed into multiple realms under queen elizabeth or at queen elizabeth's coronation that was confirmed that, that it wasn't a single realm it was multiple and yet we eventually decided that we had to join Europe for our economic security. But that came with costs, and that came with significant costs, mostly to do with the Commonwealth. And really choosing Europe over trade with the Commonwealth, much to frustration in New Zealand and Australia. And I think, as you were hinting earlier, that you thought that was a accelerating factor in the loss of that idea of a global Britain from the 50s. I think I'll put it slightly differently. I, I think I would put it in the sense of we we deliberately weakened our economic ties with certain of the countries, particularly, I think, consequentially for them, Australia and New Zealand, mm. because that there had been some economic organisation to the empire, particularly actually in the from the 1930s, so some kind of imperial economic system in which there was preferential like trade within it. When we had to leave that as part of the condition of joining the European community, we're breaking quite strong trade ties 
with these countries. So there was a sense in which, although it was formerly a monarchical union, it was a bit more than that. There was some sense of, of kinship, perhaps. Yeah. And certainly people in Australia and New Zealand from whose families had originally come from Britain, people who were still emigrating to those two countries, strong trade links, particularly actually in regard to the import of food. And then we in the United Kingdom unilaterally brought that to an end because joining the European community meant joining a customs area where everybody in the European community has to have the same trade policy and that meant we couldn't have any kind of distinctive trading relationship with Australia or any other Commonwealth country. Do you think we ever felt a enough of a kinship with these other parts of the Commonwealth or Empire, the Dominions essentially, that would have made us choose a different path to maintain those economic links? Or are they just too far away? I think that this is a much more complicated question than it seems because I think if you looked at it in terms of the former white settler uh, colonies, there was, I think, amongst some people in Britain at least, a sense of kinship. I think there was a point, isn't there, where Harold Wilson in one of the debates in the House of Commons about joining the European community says there's more posts coming backwards and forwards That's between right, yeah. Australia and Britain than there is between Britain and European countries. But it's also the case, obviously, but by the time that we're joining the European community, there's been a lot of migration from the Commonwealth, yep. all parts of the Commonwealth, into um, Britain. There's also been restrictions put on it in the 1960s. There's significantly more, obviously, migration coming from Commonwealth countries into Britain in the build-up to us joining the European community than there is migration from European countries. So in that sense, is that there is a different kind of very strong connection between people in Britain and the Commonwealth. There's a Enoch Powell speech that he delivers on St George's Day where he talks about Britain or England, actually, at the time. He talks about England being the only country with an empire in history who's not influenced in any way by its empire. It's left as this um, sapling at the heart of an empire that's collapsed. And I just think that's like evidently wrong in that, yeah. of course, it was impacted and changed and influenced by the empire, not least later on in immigration and the creation of the Commonwealth and the Queen being the head of the Commonwealth. And as we talked about it earlier, that being a modernizing effect on, on, on Britain. But I do think it's interesting that when push came to shove, Britain acted as a European nation state with its own interests and it decided that its interests were different to those of its dominions and it chose Europe. When it needed to make a decision, it chose Europe. And I think you can look at the titles again that the that our monarchs are crowned with and you can see that there's always been this difference. Elizabeth was not crowned Queen of the British Commonwealth or Queen of the British Empire or neither were the kings that came before her. She was crowned as Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland and the British Dominions and her other realms and territories. So there's always been this distinction. We've, we've never thought of ourselves as one block. So to some extent, there is this country at the heart of it that thinks of itself differently. I think yes and no. I think the monarchy, though, is why this question is really difficult to, sort of, in some sense, to, to, to get into 
focus because there's a way of telling the story about the British monarchy in the 18th century that isn't really very English and not very British either. Or European. In the sense of that, yeah. the House of Hanover. Yeah, yeah. The conflict, who are the rivals to the House of Hanover in the first part of the 18th century, the House of Stuart, uh, Scots, they know they, the name tells us yeah. they're Hanoverians. By the time we get to at least the latter part of Victoria's reign, as we were talking about earlier, she probably pushes Disraeli into giving her that Empress of India, is that those... Disraeli and flair, that those monarchs from Victoria, or let's just say all the way to George VI, I think attach a, a great importance to the empire. And they wouldn't have been able to conceive of Britain very easily independently from it. I think the situation we're in now, obviously now that we've left the European Union, on the one hand, you have people, certainly some people within the Conservative Party, who see that as an opportunity to have deeper economic relations with some of the Commonwealth countries, at least, that language of the Anglo-sphere. But at the same time, as we were discussing earlier, you have a number of the the states that are in the monarchical union who don't want to. You don't want to be there any longer. And then you've got this interesting situation, which I think could have been commented on more, whereby when the king was choosing where to make his first foreign visits as head of state, the choices that he made were France and Germany. I know he didn't go to yep. France because of the political situation in France. It wasn't to one of these countries yep. in which is the monarch, which is odd. Yeah, you... Particularly at the time when you realise that in a number of them, there's considerable political pressure to move away. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in total contrast with his mother, who went on a grand global tour in her first trip as queen, where she went to all of the realms pretty much. I think there was a, a remarkable statistic that... of Australians physically saw the Queen when she arrived in Australia. Remarkable tour. And obviously the Charles has decided, the the, the horizons are much more limited and he's decided to go to France and Germany, reflecting, of course, what the government wants. Ultimately, he is at the service of the government and the government of the day, their political objective is to mend fences with the two great powers in Europe after Brexit. I mean, I do think this is interesting. It brings us all the way back to Charles and the coronation on Saturday. And that is, Charles now has actually more realms of which he is king than his mother did. He has 14, I think, and she had six. Those will no doubt be whittled down. But I think there is a an interesting loss of confidence in that I don't think they will be named in the ceremony in that the way that they were named for the Queen, and that is partly because I think it would go down very badly in places like Jamaica, where they, I don't think, want to be named as part of the realm, or one of his realms, and other parts of the Caribbean, where they're likely to become republics soon. And I'm not sure it's necessarily would be welcomed, even in the old dominions, Australia and, and, and Canada, and the like, which actually now name the King to their own tastes. They have different titles for the King in each of the different places of where he he is king. So he is not defender of the faith in Australia or Canada, whereas he is in Britain. You come all the way back and you think, actually, that's a reflection now. So he is king of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of his other realms and territories, 
we just leave them in the air. We don't name them. We don't know what they are. You can almost read the physical shrinking of the British horizons through the coronation. I think, though, you've got us to a, a really interesting point that we're going to talk about in the second episode, Tom, which is the issue of the Church of England Yeah, in all this, which also raises questions about past in relation to the empire, but it also raises some profound questions about the union. The fact that whatever else Charles is being crowned as, the king is being crowned as, is being crowned as king of the United Kingdom, but he's also head of the Church of England, and England is only one part, as we know, of the United Kingdom Union, and we're going to talk about that in our very next episode. See you then. Thanks for listening to These Times. It's been great chatting about the mystic rituals of our coronation history and what it says about our place in the world. We hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as we did talking about it. And if you did, please subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at These Times Pod, capital T for these, capital T for times, capital P for pod. And if you've got any questions, you can send them to us at these times at unheard.com and we'll try to answer them in a future episode. What you've just heard is the first ever episode of These Times, the new politics podcast from Unheard. If you like what you hear, just search for These Times wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. There's already another episode on the coronation waiting and there'll be one every week from now on. Hope you enjoy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.